How you doing? This is Mike from Working Class Thoughts. So today's episode is actually going to be on Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. And, you know, we're going to look into how they were established. So Pol Pot was actually born in the village of Prok Sabadat, which was located outside of Kapong Tam. So interesting enough, his name was actually really Salam Sar. Now, Sar was actually, which uh, was a word that actually meant white or pale. So they named him this actually because at birth he had a really light complexion. Now, historians <clears throat> actually believe he was born May 25th of 1928. Um, he was actually a mix, though, of Chinese as well as Khmer by um, ethnicity. Now, although his family did not speak fluent Chinese, they still lived as though they were full Khmer. Now, though his father... Loth would later change his name to Salat Phom, uh, P-H-E-M. Uh, rather, Loth would, yeah. So he actually was, his father was, Popa's father was actually a very profitable farmer, and he owned nine acres of rice land as well as several cattle. Now, Pol's father's house was actually considered to be one of the largest in the village that he grew up in. And he actually would use the local people during the harvest time for, to do majority of the manual labor. Now, Pol's mother's name was Sok Nam, which is um, S-O-K-N-E-M. Now, she was actually a local pious Buddhist. Now, so Pol's eight siblings, uh, so Pol actually had eight siblings. And he was the eighth of these siblings, which meant he was the youngest. Now, he actually had two sisters and seven brothers. However, three of them actually died when Pol Pot was rather young. Now, keep in mind that they were raised in Theravida Buddhists. Now, during festival time, they actually traveled to Compass uh, Thea, or Compass Tom, K-A-M-P-O-U-S-T-H-O-M, uh, monastery. The next thing is actually really interesting. So Cambodia was actually a, manor a monarchy, although the king, he actually held very little political party, uh, very, sorry, very little political power. Now, Pol's family actually had many connections uh, to the Cambodian royal household. Now, Pol's cousin was actually, uh, Pol's cousin Meek was actually the concert for King Sazawat Manabong. Now, his cousin would later actually work as a ballet teacher. And once Pol Pot was actually six years old, himself as well as his older brother had to travel to Phnom Penh, which is P-H-N-O-M-P-E-N-H, to live with me. Now, they were actually considered informal adopted family by their more wealthier family. Now, the practice was actually really custom during that time period that Pol Pot was growing up in. So, so, uh, so Pol Pot actually spent 18 months as a novice monk in the city's monastery. While he was there, <clears throat> he actually learned Buddhist teachings as well as how to write in the Khmer language. Now, the summer of 1933... Pol Pot traveled to live with his older brother, Soong, and his wife. 
Now, his first year there, he began getting an education um, at a Roman Catholic church. And it was there that um, a Roman Catholic primary school. And a Cole Mitch with Meek paying the bills, of course. So most of his fellow students were actually rich French bureaucrats, as well as uh, Catholic Viennese. He did become fluent in French while he was there. He also became very familiar with Christianity and all its practices. Now, Pol Pot was not very um, academically gifted. Um, he actually was held back a total of two years. He only received the certificate de atus primaris complicaris um, in 1941. He was 16 years old at the time. So Pol Pot naturally went to visit Meek um, at the king's palace. He had much of his earliest sexual experiences, he said, among the king's concubines. Now, while Pol, while Pol Pot was in school, the king actually died. French authorities made the choice of putting Nordon Saint-Hanac as his replacement. A, um, and a new junior middle school was actually named College Plalon uh, Saint-Hanac. He built, and it was built in Kampong Chom. Now, Pol Pot was selected to live at that school. Now, keep in mind, this level of education, um, it naturally afforded him to live as part of the Cambodian wealthy uh, society. Now, while going to school there, uh, Pol Pot learned how to play the violin. And get this, he even was an actor in majority of the school plays. Majority of his spare time, though, was spent playing basketball and football. Now, that's actually pretty interesting when you think about it. Now, later, he, he uh, would actually hire several of his friends from that particular school to work in certain areas of his government. Now, in 1947, Pol Pot actually left that school, and that same year, he managed to pass um, the exams. It allowed him to... Um, it allowed him into the Laïs... Sawat, which was actually a college. Now, in the summer of 1948, he actually tried for the entry exams, but he actually failed. And due to this, uh, most of his... Uh, um, due to this, he actually was not able to attend school with most of his fellow students. And he was not able to continue with that, uh, going to that school. Um, you know, at the French National Academy. Sorry about that. I lost track real quick. So he actually ended studying carpentry in 1948 at the Cole Technique in Russell Kio. Now, people say that the sudden drop in an academic career actually came as a very much like a very big shock to Pol Pot. Um, but you got to really think about it. At the new school he was at was a trade school, so most of his fellow students were actually considered very lower class and much so than him. So, you know, than the ones that he actually had before that he grew up with and knowing. So although these fellow students at the trade school were not his peasants directly, it was at the trade school, though, that he met Lang Seri. 
um, who would become one of his closest friends and later become the highest-ranking member of his government, the Kamar Root. Now, the summer of 1949, he actually secured one of his five scholarships, which allowed him to travel to France to study at an engineering school. Now, the, pet, the next part is very much crucial to understand with Pol Pot. So, during World War II, France was invaded by Nazi Germany, and in 1945, the Japanese ousted the French control over Cambodia. Now, then, Shanok managed to proclaim independence of its country. So, however, after the war, France reassorted its control over Cambodia in 1946. So, although that, that allowed Cambodia to create a new constitution um, and reestablish uh, re different political parties within itself. Now, naturally, their Democratic Party won. And their 1947, or 1946, sorry about that, general election. Now, Shahak actually opposed the party's left-learning reforms. In 1948, he dissolved the National Assembly. Instead, he opted to rule by total decree. Of course he did. <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> so, anyways, at the same time, the nascent Marxist-Leninist movement had also uh, been established within Cambodia. Now, it, it was started by operatives of the Ho Chi Minh, a battle or uh, a and it's an already established party. Now, then the Viet Minh, uh, although it had been destroyed by ethnic tension between the Khmer and the Vietnamese. And that part you're going to have to understand throughout this whole thing. Now, news was actually censored. So historians believe that Pol Pot would have been unaware of this whole thing at the time. So Pol Pot's ability to have an education abroad made him a, a, tiny, bar, a tiny part of within Cambodia's elite society. Pol Pot and 21 other students uh, set for... Um, set sail for a trip to Saigon en route to Marcel. Now, while there, they stopped in Singapore, Colombo, and around January 1950, Pol Pot took a room at the French private engineering school to study radio electronics. So Pol Pot actually earned really good marks and grades during his first year there. Now, he did, however, fail his first year exam. Now, they allowed him to retest a second time, and he narrowly passed. Now, this allowed him to continue his studies. Pol Pot spent the next three years total in Paris. He did leave on several holidays. Summer of 1950, he was one of 18 Cambodian students who joined um, the French counterparts. They were traveling to Yugoslavia, a Marxist-Leninist state. They were planning on volunteering in the labor battalion building a motorway in Zagreb, Z-A-G-R-E-B. Now, he actually returned to Yugoslavia for a camping trip while he was in Paris. Pol Pot was reported to make little to no effort whatsoever to assimilate into the French culture. 
He did become very familiar, however, with the French literature, and also while in Paris, Ling, uh, Popeye, and two others established the Certi Marxists. This was a Marxist organization arranged into a clandestine cell system. <clears throat> they would actually meet to hold self-criticism sessions as well as criticism of other things. So Popeye actually helped duplicate the Circle newspaper uh, Resami, which uh, roughly translated to The Spark, named after the former Russian newspaper. So later on, October 1951, Yuan was elected as head of the Khmer Student Association, or the AEK. They established close links between the organization and the Union National Das um, Atusens, D. France. The Circle Marxists actually manipulated the AEK and its later successor organization for the next total of 19 years. A couple of um, a couple of months actually after the Circle Marxist formation, Pol Pot joined the French Communist Party or the CFP. Pol Pot attended regular party meetings, and which yes, actually included all of its uh, Cambodian group, uh, Red Magazine. The Marxist-Leninist movement was believed to be strong globally. The Communist Party had gained control in China under the Mao Zedong. Um, added with the French Communist Party was one of the country's largest political parties at the time. It attracted around roughly 25% of the French electoral process. Pol Pot actually stated many of the Karl Marxist uh, texts <coughs> was difficult for him to understand. Oh, one minute. <clears throat> it's just a lot to get through, so. <clears throat> he actually became very familiar with the writings of Joseph Stalin. He actually became very familiar with the, uh, yeah. He studied Slayer's, uh, uh, Stalin's approach to Marxists, stating that it gave him a purpose to life. Pol Pot also studied the anarchist Peter uh, Kropotin's book, The Great Revolution. Now, that is where they said he, uh, where he said that he actually got the initial idea to combine peasantry and intellectual. He said that it had to be equal, an equal alliance, for it to be necessary uh, to have a proper revolution in the country. So it needed to happen so that the communist system would not fail. In Pol Pot's home country, there was growing strife um, resulting in King Sadok's dismantling all government, declaring himself total prime minister. Pol Pot wrote an article that he called a monarchy or a democracy that he circulated among uh, the French in Cambodia. Now, at the meeting, the circle decided that they needed someone in Cambodia to, um, to access this whole situation. Pol Pot naturally volunteered himself. So December, he actually returned to Cambodia without a degree. But Popol, uh, Pol Pot arrived in Saigon on January 13, 1953, 
And here's an interesting part to this. It just so happened to be that the same day that Sahanak dismantled the Democratic Party and he started to rule by total decree. Now, at that time, he arrested uh, Democratic Party members of the parliament without a trial. Um, during the same time, Cambodia was at total civil war amid the first um, um, Indo-Gigian war. Um, I-N-D-O-C-H-I-A-N. Now, Pol Pot actually spent several months at the headquarters of Prince Nordam, or Chant, uh, C-H-A-N-T-A-R-A-I-N-G-S-E-Y. Now, he later, uh, he actually later moved to Phnom Penh, where he would meet Sarkov member Ping Se. Now, Pol Pot felt that most promise, that it was the most promising resisting group at the time. Now, um, was named Kamar Viet Man. Now, they were actually a, a guerrilla military group that was a mixture of North Vietnamese based Viet Men. Now, they were actually, you know, mainly mixed of Vietnamese and Cambodian fighters. Now, his recommendation was actually agreed upon by the Sarkov members in Paris, their headquarters. Now, it was August of 1953 when Pol Pot and Roth Samasan went to Krabo, uh, K-R-A-V-O. Now, this happened to be the headquarters of the Vietnam Eastern Zone. It was over the following night, the next following nine months, around 12 other Circa members actually joined them. Now, Shanak, he wanted complete independence uh, from the French colonial rule. Um, once France actually refused his request, he actually immediately called for public assistance um, June of 1953. Now, once that happened, the Kamar troops left the French army in large numbers. The French did not want a costly war. They were like, you know, it's just not worth it. So they actually retreated uh, control. <coughs> and left total control to their king. Now, it was November that Sahanak declared the Cambodians' independence once again. Now, the Civil War actually grew mainly with France baking, uh, backing uh, Prince or King Sun Hanak's war against the rebels. Now, once the, at the Geneva, once the Geneva Conference called for an end to the uh, First Indonesian War, Sun Hanak did secure an agreement from the North Viennese, and they agree, they actually agreed to withdraw Khmer Viet Minh's forces from all of Cambodia's tento, uh, territory. <coughs> now, the final troops of Vietnamese actually left October of 1954. Pol Pot actually decided that he wanted to stay in Cambodia. He didn't want to go back to France. So Cambodia's Marxist lineage, they wanted to operate secretly, however so that they can establish a socialist party. Now, this was to serve as a front organization 
so that they could complete, uh, compete, sorry, in the 1955 election. <coughs> the, uh, the 1955 September election. Um, and, you know, that September election, it actually had a lot of voter intimidation as well as a lot of electoral fraud. And it ultimately resulted in King Sanox, uh Song Kong winning all of the seats. So Hanak established a one-party state. Now, this put out hopes that the Cambodian left would actually, you know, take power. Pol Pot rented a, pay, a place in the Bon King Kong. King, sorry. B-O-E-N-G. Uh, K-E-N-G, K-A-N-G. Now, although he was not qualified to teach at the school, he actually ended up teaching the school's history and geography as well as French literature, as well as morals and uh, Chamron Vichia. Now, he married Kaham Paneri, which uh, K-H-E-U-P-O-N-N-E-R-Y. Now, they actually had a traditional Buddhist uh, ceremony on July of 1956. At a TASA uh, conference, the members, leaders actually established the Comp Yuchian Labor Party. They based their party on democratic centralism. Pol Pot, Tao Samadon, and Noan Chia, now remember those names, actually were part of a four-man team that led that party. So it was, and its very existence was to be very kept, kept very secret. It remained secret from September uh, to October of 1960. Now that is when Samoth became the party secretary and Nuan Chen, his deputy, while Pol Pot took the third senior position um, Lang, the Lang, sorry, the fourth. Sahak spoke out against the Cambodian Marxist Linus, even though he was a supporter of Charles, uh, China's Marxist Linus government. So, January of 1962, Sahak's secretary, uh, security services, sorry. Uh, started a crackdown, if you will, on all Cambodian socialists. If he found out that you were socialists, you were done. So he began asserting the leaders of Prachion, or Prachia Chan, around July. Samat was arrested, tortured slowly, and then killed. Once Nuan Chia took a step back from political beliefs. Once or, yeah, Pol Pot actually became the party leader once that happened. Sanak's government faced hostility from the left and the right's opposition at the same time. It was all centered on Sanak's formal minister of state, uh, Sam Sori, S-A-M-S-A-R-Y, who was backed by the United States directly. Uh, Thailand, as well as South Vietnamese. Once Sanak's father died, however, in 1960, Sanak made himself head of state for life. Nobody can, uh, nobody could dismantle. 
It was February in 1962 that anti-government students, uh, protesters, actually turned into total chaos and riots, and very destructive at that. So uh, conditions at the Viet Cong camp were very, very basic, and food was very, very scarce. So as a knock completely cracked down on the movement. Growing numbers of its members actually went to join Pol Pot at its jungle base. February of 1963, the party's second conference party, Pol Pot was actually elected as the party's secretary. Now, he actually governed from back in the jungle. He never wanted to leave the jungle. You know, the guy was just stuck on being in the jungle. Through all the research, everything I found on him, he was always in the jungle. So... He was elected, um, early in 1964, Popot established his own encampment that he called Office 100. Um, South Vietnamese, on the South Vietnamese side of the border. So the interesting enough, this allowed his actions to be officially separate from the Viet Cong. The uh, Central Committee actually met again in January of 1963 to denounce the peaceful transition to socialism, being that espoused by the Soviet premier Nikita uh, Khrushchev, or K-H-R-U-S-H-C-H-E-V. Pol Pot started to develop their own form of government, uh, Cambodian uh, version of socialism ideology. The party's main area of growth was royal peasantry, which happened to be one of the largest factions of the Cambodian society. By 1965, their membership was in the realms of 2000. April of 1965, Pol Pot actually traveled by foot along the um, Ho Chi Minh Trail um, to Hanoi to meet with North Vietnamese government figures. You know, he really, with the Vietnam War going on, though, they did not really want to get involved with Pol Pot's forces to destabilize Sinat's government. November 1965, Pol Pot flew from Hanoi to Beijing in secret. In secret, uh, in secret yeah. His official's host was Ding Zongping, um, X-I-A-P-I-N-G. Although he mainly dealt with Ping Zhang, Z-H-E-N, Pol Pot actually gained a very sympathetic hearing among the top governing Communist Party of China. He also received specialized training while he was there, like dictatorship of the electoral class struggles and the political purge. It was in Beijing, though, where Pol Pot actually witnessed the ongoing China Cultural Revolution firsthand, which actually later really influenced his, poli- uh, his politics on Cambodia, or his policies on Cambodia, sorry. Pol Pot actually left Beijing in February of 1966, and once he arrived, he actually went on a four-month-long journey along the Ho Chi Minh Trail to reach the new Cambodian Marxist-Leninist new base on Lok Nan, uh, N-I-N-H. It was October of 1966. 
he and other Cambodian uh, party leaders re reached many decisions. Uh, party of Krampachia, K-A-M-P-U-C-H-E-A, or the CPK, it was actually kept secret at first, of course. Sanak began to call the uh, call them Red Cambodians because of their support of Russia ideology. So around January of 1968, a war was launched on the Bay Damaran. It was an actual army post. They targeted police and soldiers. They also seized weaponry. The government's response to the attacks, however, a scorched earth policy was formed. They bombed areas that the rebels were believed to be active in. Eventually, over 100,000 villagers would join the rebels' forces. So around the summer, Pol Pot decided to relocate his base to a more mountainous terrain area that he would call or uh, along the Nagas Trail, sorry, N-A-G-A-S. Now, he called it K-5. In the time period that Pol Pot was doing this, he really did establish growing dominance over the whole party from within. He had an absolute control over K-5. No outsider was actually allowed to to uh, talk with Pol Pot directly without an escort. In November of 1969, Pol Pot traveled to Hanoi to try to convince the North Vietnamese for governing military help. However, they refused. Um, and they said that he needed to revert back to the political struggle system. It was January of 1970 that he actually flew to Beijing in secrecy. It was there that his wife began to show signs of paranoid schizophrenia. So... In March of 1970, while Pol Pot was in Beijing, members of the Cambodian parliament, actually led by Lan Nal, deposed Shanox while he was out of the country. So ironically, Shanox himself flew to Beijing at the same time that Pol Pot was there. Um, the but while he was there, the Chinese and North Vietnamese Communist Party urged Shanox to make an alliance with the Khmer Rouge an effort to overthrow Lan Noy's right-wing government system. Shanak actually agreed to this term, which is actually really surprising. So get this. Hold on. Zong Aliz Nis, E-N-L-I-S, advised Pol Pot although his role was hidden from Sahanak. So Sahanak then formed his very own elite, or his very own exile in Beijing. He launched the National United Front of Kampuchea, K-A-M-P-U-C-H-E-A, in an effort to rally opponents of Lan Nal. So around April of 1970, Pol Pot flew to Hanoi, he went there to urge Li Duan that although he did not need weapons, or although he did need weapons to supply the Khmer Rouge with weapons, he did not want Vietnamese troops, for he stated that Cambodia itself and its Cambodian troops needed to oust Lan Noi themselves, nobody else. So, as it turns out, the North Vietnamese Army... <clears throat> 
decided to collaborate with the Viet Cong to invade Cambodia to attack law and uh, noise voice, uh, forces anyways. Because of that, the South Vietnamese and the USA sent troops to the country to bolster the government and, and rally support. So, as a result, it resulted in the Cambodian king being involved in the already second Indonesia war, which was happening all over Vietnam at the time. So the U.S. decided to drop three times as many bombs on Cambodia during that conflict as they had used during World War II. The U.S. said that they were targeting the Viet Cong and the Khmer Rouge encampments. However, it was reported by primarily that they primarily bombed innocent civilians and innocent civilian villages. This was all viewed, uh, this all actually fueled the recruitment numbers in the Khmer Rouge. <clears throat> they had an actual estimated number of 12,000 uh, 12, regular soldiers near the end of 1970. So it was said that four times, it was four times that number two years later. Around June in 1970, Pol Pot left Vietnam and he managed to reach his K-5 base by July. And it was in July that he decided to head south. That is when he began calling himself Pol Pot. Remember, I told you the name thing was significant. So get this, by September, he was based um, at a camp near the border of Krati and Kapong Thong. There he arranged a meeting with the CPK Standing Committee. It resulted in Cambodia, and uh, it resulted in Cambodia must be self-reliant and fully independent and of any other countries whatsoever, uh, decision being made. Around November, Pol Pot and Ponore relocated to the K-1 base at Dang Kada, D-A-N-G-K-D-A. Pol Pot actually set up on the northern side of the Chanit River. The entry had, was actually very much strictly controlled. And around the end of that year, Marxist forces had a massive presence over half of the Cambodian population. Keep in mind that the Khmer Rouge actually played a restricted role in all of that. In 1971 through 1972, majority of the fighting actually against Lan Noi was carried out by the Vietnamese or by Cambodians who were underneath Vietnamese control. So January of 1971, a Central Committee meeting <clears throat> was held at Pol Pot's base. They brought together 27 delegates to discuss the war. The whole, uh, the whole year of 1971, Pol Pot and other senior members mainly focused on the construction of the regular Khmer Rouge army. They needed it to take control, um, to take the central role when the Viennese withdrew their troops. So July and August, Pol Pot actually oversaw me long training course for CPK elders in the Northern Zone headquarters. So early in 1972, Pol Pot embarked on his, to, his first tour of Marxist-controlled areas in Cambodia. 
and into the liberated zones that he called corruption was stomped out, or, yeah, uh, Marxist-controlled areas across Cambodia. So in the liberated zones, corruption was stomped out, gambling was banned, and alcohol and marital affairs were strongly discouraged. 1970 and 1971, the Khmer Rouge had general cultivated good relations with inhabitants of Cambodia. They also organized local election assemblies. If the people were deemed hostile towards the Khmer Rouge movement, they were executed on the spot. Co-op stores selling goods like medical supplies, clothing, and kerosene were established underneath this new system. This provided goods imported from Vietnam without the Vietnamese being there. Wealthy families had their land actually redrawn up. So by the end of 1972, all families in the Marxist-controlled areas possessed an equal area of land. Now, really, from 1972 on, the Khmer Rouge began to refashion all of Cambodia in the image of a poor peasant wearing black clothing and red and white chroma scarves as well as sandals that were made from car tires. Yes, you heard that right. Their sandals were made from car tile, uh, car tires. So Pol Pot naturally wore the exact same outfit. All the CPK members were expected to attend regular lifestyle meetings. They were encouraged uh, where they would engage in criticism as well as self-criticism. It, na- it, was, it naturally actually created an atmosphere of violence and suspicion within the Khmer Rouge movement. Only Pol Pot and Nguyen Chia was actually not criticized. By early of 1972, the relations between the Khmer Rouge and the Vietnamese uh, Marxist allies actually became very, very much strained. Ultimately, violent clashes actually began breaking out. <clears throat> That same year, North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, or Viet Cong Mon forces, began pulling out of Cambodia. As they became very dominant, the Khmer Rouge became uh, more dominant. The CPK imposed an increasing control of over Viennese troops that were actually still active in Cambodia. They want to complete control over them. They're like, "You're my country, you know. I got, I got control over you." It's like that. That's what they were saying. So, March of 1973, Pol Pot actually ordered a colonialism over of all areas um, that he controlled. It was both ideological as it was seen to be helping to build a socialist society free from private property. See, uh, Pol Pot system, he did not want anybody to own anything. You didn't have any private property, whatever. Everything that you owned was the states, period, point blank. The TV you watch at night, the states. They could take it back anytime they want to. The car you drive, the states. They could take it back anytime that they want to. Uh, you know, your cell phone, anything, anything, anything. Everything is the states. You own nothing except for the clothes, which they provide to <clears throat> But anyways, we're not going to get involved in that right now. So it allowed the Khmer Rouge greater control over the food supply. 
many villagers actually resented it. Um, and they would actually slaughter their livestock to prevent the Kamar Rouge from becoming, uh, or could, to prevent their livestock from becoming Kamar Rouge private or collective property. Over the next six months, 60,000 Cambodians fled from areas under Khmer Rouge control. The Khmer Rouge formed a draft to, um, to up their numbers. So July of 1973, Pol Pot ordered the internment of any Khmer Rouge that had spent time in North Vietnamese or North Vietnam. Most of them would be executed on the spot. So the summer of 1973, the Khmer Rouge launched its first attack of the Pon Pini, but had heavy losses. Later that year, it began bombing the city with artillery. Autumn, by autumn, Pol Pot actually traveled to Krok Sadat, a base on the foothills of the Cambodian mountains. September of 1974, a central committee meeting was held, and there, the Khmer Rouge agreed that um, it would expel the population of Cambodia's elites living in rural villages. They saw it as a necessary measure in dismantling capitalism and urban vices. By 1974, Lon Noyes' government lost a great deal of support, both, of, uh, both domestically within Cambodia as well as globally. <clears throat> So, 1975, troops defending Phong, or, yeah, Phong Pien, uh, began discussing surrender. They eventually did, April 17th, 1975. It allowed the Khmer Rouge to enter the city for the first time in years. There, the soldiers actually executed 700 to 800 senior government, military, and police figures. Now, other senior man members managed to escape. Lon Noel him uh, himself actually escaped to the United States of America. He left Sahonk Khoi and act the active president, however, although he would later uh, flee aboard a U.S. Navy ship shortly after. So, within the city, <clears throat> the Kamar's militia, under control of different zone commanders, clashed with actually each other. It resulted in a turf war. The Khmer Rouge actually had a history of viewing the Phan Pien population with mistrust, mainly due to the large number of its population being seen as traitors. Shortly after... Hold on one minute. So, shortly after, they had control of the city. The Khmer Rouge announced everyone had to leave to escape an upcoming U.S. bomb raid. They said everyone could return in a total of three days. It involved in moving two and a half million people, as well as between 15,000 and 20,000 people being moved from hospitals and were forced to march um, <clears throat> <coughs> there I go. 
about that if you're still with me i'm sorry about that it was a uh developing a little bit of a sinus infection so let me see where i was at that all right everybody hold on one second So checkpoints were actually created where the Khmer Rouge people search people for, you know, anything and remove any personal belongings. Now, this march actually happened to take place in the hottest month of the year. Many people actually died on this journey. Death toll is actually estimated at around 20,000 people. The Khmer Rouge saw this as demolishing capitalism within Cambodia. But also, Sanok's power base, as well as the CIA's network in dismantling it all. It helped secure the Khmer Rouge dominance over the country completely. So, on April 20th, 1975, three days after the Phnom Penh fell, Pol Pot secretly arrived in the abandoned city. Now, he naturally had leaders of the Khmer Rouge with him. He based himself in the railroad uh, railroad station. Um, in May, they actually relocated there permanently. Now, the uh, they actually relocated to the former finance ministry building. Now, their top priority, Pol Pot said, should be agriculture. Um, Pol Pot declared agriculture a national defense. Pol Pot believed unless Cambodia could develop swiftly, they would be vulnerable to Viennese domination, um, as it had in the past. So Pol Pot wanted to reach 70 to, uh, 70 to 80% form, uh, farm mechanism and machinism sorry, in 5 to 10 years as well as modern a modern industrial base in 15 to 20 years. Pol Pot envisioned uh, developing a way to make farmers, farmer work. Pol Pot actually insisted that the, uh, in developing a way to make the farmers work harder and faster. <coughs> The Khmer Rouge wanted to make a Cambodian self-sufficient state. They did not reject foreign um, 
foreign aid, however. China supplied them with uh, a very much substantial uh, food aid. However, it was not public knowledge. It was not allowed to be public knowledge. Shortly after taking control of Phnom Penh, uh, Ling Suri traveled to Beijing to negotiate 13,300 tons of Chinese weaponry to Cambodia. Now, April's National... Uh, April's National uh, Congress meeting, the Khmer Rouge, actually stated they will not allow any foreign military base in a, on Cambodian soil whatsoever. And this was a direct statement, however, to Vietnam. It still had roughly 20,000 troops in Cambodia. So to ease, uh, to ease the tension of a rising uh, territory clashes, with the Viennese soldiers over the Y Island, um, W-A-I, in an island. So Pol Pot, Nguyen Chia, Ling Suri traveled secretly to Hanoi, where they offered a friendship treaty between the two countries. After that meeting, Pol Pot um, proceeded to Beijing in secret. Now Mao urged the younger Cambodian not to um, not to be uncritical and emitted at the path uh, to socialism pursued by China. Also, to avoid repetition of more extreme acts from the Khmer Rouge, uh, you know, like the acts that they had been conducting. China was frowning on that. He was like, kind of like slapping them on the wrist, slapping Pope on the wrist, saying, hey man, keep on the path to the socialism we've taught you, but you know what I'm saying? By the way, tell your troops to quit doing all that crazy stuff. That's basically what that meant. So while he was in China, Pol Pot received treatment for his malaria and his uh, gastric ailments. Now, after that, Pol Pot traveled to Northern Korea, uh, North, North Korea to meet with Kim, Kim, Kim Song, the second. Mid-July, he went back to Cambodia. Now, he was in, it was around May that Pol Pot adopted the silver propaganda propaganda as his main residence. Now, he would later re uh, relocate to the city's tallest structure, the 1960s built bank buildings. Now, which later was named K-1. Now, naturally, several other city government, uh, senior government officials stayed there with Pol Pot. Pol Pot's wife who has schizophrenia, you know, her condition actually grew relatively worse. She was sent to live in a house um, in Boong Camp. Sorry, there we had a little technical interruption. So Pol Pot's um, wife is actually sent to live in a house in Boong King Kong. Now, to give his government a better look of legitima uh, legitimacy, Pol Pot organized a parliamentary election. Although there was only uh, one candidate in every constitutional, except Phnom Penh, P-H-N-O-M-P-E-N-H. Although Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge remained a de facto government, there was a formal government, the Gronk uh, coalition, although its nominee head, uh, Penn North, remained in Beijing. 
Now, although through 1975, the Communist Party's government at Cambodia was kept secret, um, at a special National Congress meeting from um, during April 25th through 27th, the Khmer Rouge agreed to make Shamanc uh, the nominee head state. He retained at the status throughout 1975. Pol Pot decided this was a good thing. Now, he um, happened to take advantage of Sanak's loss in the uh, sense that, you know, he had a non-aligned movement. Sanak settled in his palace, and he was, you know, actually treated really well. So he was allowed to travel abroad, meaning Pol Pot allowed him to travel wherever he wanted to go. In fact, he went to the UN General Assembly to promote the new Cambodian government that Pol Pot and him was developing, mainly Pol Pot. Uh, then November, he actually left on an international tour. So during that time, the Khmer Rouge military forces remained divided into different zones so that all of the troops into one national revolutionary army to be headed by uh, San Sen, S-O-N-S-E-N, and you need to remember that name too. So there was a new currency that actually had been printed in China. Uh, the Khmer Rouge decided not to introduce it, however. They decided that it would be it would lead to corruption um, and undermine their efforts to uh, to create a socialist society. There was absolute no wages in Cambodia society. The population simply did whatever the Khmer Rouge commanded them to do, and they did it without pay. So if you did not do what they told you to do, it was uh, mandatory punishment or execution on the spot, and normally it was execution on the spot. So in September, Pol Pot actually announced that all farmers are expected to meet a quota of three tons of patty or rice, an increase of whatever, basically an increase of whatever there was previous year that was grown. So if you grew this much this previous year, Pol Pot expected you to do double or triple that the next year or you're going to die. It's just that simple. He also announced all manufacturing jobs should uh, produce basic agricultural uh, machinery and bicycles. So 1975, um, everyone living in rural uh, co-ops meant most of the Cambodia society to be classified into three groups. Now, these three groups were full-right members, candidates, and uh, depositees. So, within the villages, Koat Khmer Rouge military regularly killed um, those demeaned to be bad elements of society. Khmer Rouge basically had a statement, to keep you is profit, or to keep you is no profit, to destroy you is absolutely no loss. So, they would basically bury the dead in the fields, and they basically used them to be used as fertilizer. So the standing committee decreed that all the population would work 10 days a week with one day off from, uh, from labor. Cambodians were told to talk, uh, talk about themselves in a plural, we, rather than singular, I. So basically what that meant is you were no longer to refer to yourself as an individual. You were only to re refer to yourself as we, meaning we are, there is no more you.
That's basically what that meant. So workers and fields were uh, separated by sex. <clears throat> Sports were strictly prohibited. Um, only reading material uh, was provided by the state was absolutely allowed. Now, restrictions were placed on your movement. You were only allowed to travel with permission from local Khmer Rouge authorities, who basically, they had their checkpoints at the end of certain rows, and, you know, you got caught without your papers, you were killed. So, January of 1976, a cabinet meeting was held to promulgate a new constitution declaring that it be named the Democratic Kampuchek, uh, K-M-P-U-C-H-E-S. Uh, the constitution said and states that that the state owns all means of production. Male and females are to be equal. There is no more male race or sex. There is no more female sex. You are all equal. You are just one worker. That is it. You are an item. That's what Pol Pot decided. So all citizens were forced to work regardless of age. As soon as you were able to walk and they could figure out that you could use, they use you for something, you started working. The government would be ran by three people. Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge expected Sahanak. One would take one of these positions, however. However, in March, he resigned from his post. So meaning that the, the, you know, the king, he was expected to fill one of the positions, but he didn't like the direction that Cambodia was going in. So in March, he resigned from his post. So the removal of Sanak actually ended the Khmer Rouge government, and it can no longer be a united front within a secret united front within the government. So with him gone, Pol Pot uh, stated uh, national revolution is over. So now it's on the full on uh, socialism revolution. Now, this could allow the country to move uh, towards pure communism. That's what Pol Pot said. So basically what he said is, hey, me and my people, we secretly try to infiltrate the government system and we formed our own little democratic party and we try to infiltrate it and it didn't work. So his statement was, the only way to make uh, the country move towards pure socialism <clears throat> is all-out revolution. So in 1970s, Marxist-Leninism was at its strongest point in humanity's history. Pol Pot was seen as an example for revolutionaries to follow. In principle, the Khmer Rouge Standing Committee made decisions on the basis of Leninist principles of democratic centralism. So the parliament, which had been established before, never met um, after 17, 1776. The Cambodian population were officially known as Kampuchen, uh, K-A-M-P-U-C-H-E-A-N, rather than Khmer, which was their ethnic race. They actually took away their race. They said, you no longer have your own race. This is what you are. So to avoid ethnic uh, specificity, uh, they basically did this, they said, to avoid any ethnic uh, association within their society. They wanted to do away with it all. So now they only have one term. The Khmer language was now called Kampuchean by the government. And it was the only language allowed in the country. If they heard you speaking any other language, they killed you. It was that simple. So Pol Pot began trying to build major projects across the country, such as dams. 
Many projects actually fail due to lack of experts. Members of the Khmer Rouge receive special treatment, not enjoyed by the rest of the population. The Khmer Rouge classify people based on religion and ethnic background, including where you were allowed to live at and where you were allowed to do anything at. So Pol Pot had a policy of state of atheism. He banned all religion in the country. In fact, Buddhist monks were viewed as social parasites. With the one year of Khmer Rouge, the monks were set to manual labor. Meaning if you were a monk, your, your butt was off to the field to go. You were working. So eventually, several um, isolated revolts broke out against Pol Pot's government officials. The Western Zone chief, Koa Kong, uh, then began launching small-scale attacks on government targets along the Thai border. Several villages had rebellions uh, form among the uh, Cham, C-H-A-M. <clears throat> February 1976, various explosions in the Siam Reap destroyed a muni uh, munitions de uh, depot that Pol Pot had. So Pol Pot actually suspected uh, senior military people were behind it, and he had them arrested immediately. So September in 1976, various party members were arrested and accused of conspiring with Vietnam to overthrow the government. So over the next couple of months, arrests actually increased. The party members were accused of being spies for the Central Intelligence Agency of America as well, or it was either that or they said you were a Soviet KGB spy or a North Vietnamese spy being uh, different ones from different agencies naturally. They couldn't just say everybody was underneath one banner. The Khmer Rouge converted um, a discuss and discussed a private school, <clears throat> like converting it into a security prison because it was abandoned. This prison was to later be known as S-21. And it was, let me just tell you, it was one of the most notorious prisons in world history as far as uh, if you want to even, if you even want to call it that. So the first half of 1976, 400 people were actually sent there. By the second half, that increased to 1,000. By the spring, 1,000 were brought there every single month. Roughly 15,000 and 20,000 people were killed at S21. About a dozen were Westerners. Just nobody knew about it at that time. So from 1976 onward... <clears throat> Especially in the year 1977, levels of violence increased across the whole country of Cambodia, particularly at the village level, meaning peasantry. Uh, so across the country, peasants, uh, Kadors, tortured and killed people they disliked, meaning if they had a neighbor that they disliked, there was so much murder going on underneath Pol Pot's regime that if they just had a disagreement with somebody, they just killed them. They just called them an enemy of the state and killed them. So many uh, would actually eat their victims, livers, or other body parts. And then they would also tear unborn fetuses out uh, to basically eat and actually use the uh, skulls and bones as talismans for their rituals. So by 1977, the growing violence actually um, erupted with poor food, uh, making a disillusion grow within the Khmer Rouge itself. You know, like the core support of the Khmer Rouge, like a disillusion was growing because underneath Pol Pot, there's so much violence, so much death 
and so much bad food that it even started affecting the senior members, you know, that have been there for years. Remember, remember earlier when I stated that most of them, you know, that he hired actually went to school with them. So, I mean, these are people he's known his whole life. And even they were like, dude, you're doing too much. They were getting disillusioned by it, you know. But anyways, so autumn of 1977, Pol Pot declared the purges at an end. Um, oh, I should actually say that. So if you didn't know, when Pol Pot first became power, he said, we're going to start a purge, which he called a purge of all Western ideology, a purge of all religion, a purge of anything that was against Kamar Rouge. So autumn of 1977, he said he's announcing an end of it. But by August of 1977, between 4,000 and 5,000 party members were completely liquidated and known as enemy agents or bad elements, meaning they were killed. So by 1978, the government announced a second purge to begin, and thousands of Cambodians were accused of being Vietnamese sympathizers or Western sympathizers or Russian sympathizers, and they were swiftly killed, often their whole families. The remaining CPK members who spent time in Hanoi were killed along their, along with their children, meaning political people. So in 1976, made tensions between Cambodia and Vietnam grow. May of 1976, a negotiation for a map with Vietnam failed. China became Cambodia's main source of support at that point with Vietnam continuing to side with Russia. So, November in 1976, Pol Pot traveled to Beijing secretly, seeking to retain his country's alliance with China after the uh, Gang of Four was actually arrested. I might do an episode of the Gang of Four, just throwing it out there. So, historians actually estimated that 1.671 million to 1.871 million Cambodians died as a result of the Khmer Rouge policies, or between 21% and 21.4% of Cambodians' 1976 population total. So also, 300,000 Cambodians starved to death between 1979 and 1980. So Pol Pot actually grew suspicious of Son Sin, and in June of 1997, he ordered his death. Kamar Rouge Kadris subsequently uh, killed the son, sorry, killed the son and 13 of his family members. And besides, Pol Pot later stated, though, when he was caught, I did not order those murders and I did not sanction any mass genocide. So Tom Mock was concerned that Pol Pot could turn on. So he rallied up troops saying that Pol Pot betrayed their movement, the Khmer Rouge movement. So June 12th of 1997, Pol Pot and his family fled on foot. And he was so frail. They said that he had to be carried. Like he couldn't even walk. He was so old and he was so frail and so malnourished that they said that he actually had to be gently carried. So they fled on foot though. And Pol Pot, like I was just saying, was frail. And I, yeah, so Pol Pot was caught and placed on house arrest. July, Pol Pot was actually sentenced to life in prison by the Kamar Rouge itself. And three of his closest friends and commanders were sentenced to death. So on April 15, 1998, Pol Pot actually died in his sleep of heart failure. 
his body was actually preserved with ice so that his death could actually be verified by journalists, worldwide journalists, that were attending his funeral. He was so bad, he killed so many people that his body had to be put on ice just so the world journalists could document that he actually died and that it was him. But anyways, so three days later, his wife actually cremated him on a pair of Pyrus tires and a pile of trash rubbish. There is suspicion, however, that he committed suicide once he discovered that Tom Mox actually planned to hand him over to United States of America Central Intelligence Agency. So, like I said, this episode is packed with a lot of information. Pol Pot was one of the most sadistic um, dictators in world history. The man is a brutal, was a, I can't say is, he was a one of the world's most brutal dictators. The reason why I have him on one of, uh, one of the, what I consider him one of my favorite ones, is the way that he did it. Although I stand against socialism, I will never embrace socialism or any form of socialism. I think this episode will actually show you results and what happens with that. <coughs> and the reasons why you should stand against it. That's just me. Neither here nor there. I'm not pushing no political agenda here. But anyways. Um, well, hell, I mean, that's just how I feel. But yeah. But anyways. You can see how it all happened. I mean, they had a monarchy system at the beginning. Although he didn't hold, you know, that much power, you know, and then over a period of time, it changed into uh, into socialism. It was democratic socialism is what they were saying at the beginning of the research material. Then that changed and that morphed into something else. And then that morphed into something else and it morphed into communism and morphed into dictatorship. So this is why I stand against that. That's as far as I'm going to go there. But as far back to Pol Pot and the regime, these men are responsible for some of the most horrendous crimes, some of the most worst tortures that you will ever see. The amount of bones that are in this field, it is still being found to this day. They are still finding new bones in this field at Cambodian people to this day. <coughs> That's how many bones. Like, they showed a lady walking on the dirt path, and she was kicking dirt aside, and you could see the white as a result of someone's bones that were actually in the ground still. That's how many bones they are. They, could, they simply could not get all of the bones. That's how many people were killed. They only have a... The numbers that they're throwing out there, um, these are core numbers, meaning that they're verified numbers by whoever organization, but it is common knowledge that there is no official number of victims that um, died of any Cambodia's con uh, Pol Pot whenever Pol Pot had control of it. Um, and he led some of the most brutal things, some of the most uh, common practices that he had was just horrendous. Uh, for instance, child marriage was common underneath Pol Pot's regime. In fact, forced marriages were common underneath Pol Pot regime. If a Khmer Rouge member stated that he wanted to marry somebody, and that woman's family spoke up against it, they would be killed. Or if the girl spoke up against it, they would be killed. Um, so you just didn't have no choice. And like I said, whenever whenever Pol Pot established his full form, as short-lived as it was, I want to throw that out there, as short-lived as it was, when he had the full dictatorship, I'm not talking throughout his whole career, when he had full control, an active dictator, in that short amount of time, he killed a countless number of people. And um, his methods were out there. They would do stuff like take a spike and take it through, uh, like right, right in here, 
and just shove it through your back, along your spine, and basically come out the top of your butt, uh, top of your ass, just sticking out. And then he would have two people carrying you off to the field. Child soldiers were common. This was, like I said before, um, they would basically, as soon as you gave birth to a child, as soon as a Kamar Rouge official stated that that child is, uh, can actually do something, that child was taken from the mother's custody and forced to work. There was no choice. You had no choice. And then, you know, the, the, other, the other bizarre part is, to me, the other bizarre part is the manipulation behind it that he did. When you take away somebody's identity to the point to where they're no longer to call themselves male or female as an official state policy, that's a state policy underneath his, underneath his watch, Pol Pot's watch, that over a period of time will mess with somebody's head. I'm not talking to people that were like they knew it before. I'm talking about people that didn't know anything else, and that's the only thing they know because I'm telling you, people underneath Pol Pot's regime, um, I, I can't think of too many people that were revolt against them. There were revolts, but majority, I'm talking to majority of people though. I mean, they just, you just did whatever they said because you'd be killed otherwise. Then the child soldiers, some of them were so small that we, to, to see them holding these guns, these guns are taller than some of the children that's holding the guns. And I'm talking at shooting stance when they were shooting them. It just looked like they were holding this giant tree trunk. <laughs> Because they were so small holding a gun. So, I mean, this is how brutal Pol Pot's regime is. This is how brutal um, This is how brutal socialism can get. Now, keep in mind, it started underneath the monarchy, turned into one thing, and morphed, like I said, morphed into, basically it took all the steps. Pol Pot took all those steps to get to total dictatorship. But anyways, either here nor there. This has been Mike for Working Class Thoughts. This has been Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. I hope you guys learned about the Cambodian people. Um, something else I want to throw out there. There is a lot of things that um, charities out there that you can denote, uh, donate to uh, to help the people of Cambodia. I know a lot of people um, um, Cambodia, they're still dealing with stuff to this day. I think it's getting better, but they're still dealing with stuff to this day. So I'll just throw that out there. And again, this has been Michael Working Class Thoughts. It's been Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. Uh, a little bit about the history of Cambodia during Pol Pot's uh, time. I hope you guys learn what you will from this, and I know everybody draws their own conclusions at the end of the day. Um, and the guys expect a new episode coming your way very soon. Um, I'm trying to decide between which one it is, but it looked like it could be dwelling into the world of organized crime. So, this has been Michael Rick Class Thoughts. Peace, love, and good vibes. Everybody have a great night.